disaster Don't you give up, don't you let away Talking about a forever after Don't you give up, don't you dare give up seem most precarious out there, but we're not giving up, and we're definitely not giving in around here. I'll tell you that, brothers and sisters. We've got you back at the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome to the Women's Rights in the Workplace show with Jack Tuckner and Deborah Orell. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Amanda Noreko-esque, a feminist fighter if there ever was one. <laughs> Amanda is the director of the Matrimonial and Economic Justice Project at the Center for Battered Women's Legal Services at Sanctuary for Families. A mouthful, but New York's largest nonprofit agency exclusively dedicated to serving the clinical, economic, legal, and shelter needs of victims of gender-based violence and their children. Ms. Nareko is an attorney who has been representing victims of domestic violence and sex trafficking in family law and matrimonial matters in New York City for more than a dozen years. She engages in legislative and policy advocacy aimed at combating violence against women and promoting women's economic empowerment, pretty much the topic of this show today, on the local, state, national, and international level, which is so enormously important to our, all of our communities. Thank you for joining us today, Amanda. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Um, and if you have a question for Ms. Noreko during the show today while it's live, please feel free to give us a call at 888-874-4888. Well, Amanda, as anyone can tell from the uh, fairly sh- the short version of the bio I just read, uh, you're right on the front lines in the struggle to empower women who've been victimized through violence in one form or another, and at times to the point of a virtual enslavement as a result of either DV or certainly and or human trafficking. Um, and by the way, you know, human trafficking, I think people think of it more or less of, you know, like human trafficking. It's not like just sex trafficking in Thailand, but it's happening right here in New York City, isn't it? I mean, it's right at home. Yes, that's correct. There are victims who are born here who are trafficked within their own neighborhood, within blocks of where they grow up. When we look at trafficking, we don't look at moving across borders. What we're looking at is one person exploiting another person for sex or for labor. So that distinction, how do you separate that from, I thought one can pretty much argue that, from any person, like any purveyor of prostitution, such as a pimp, would be economically, uh, there's a duress that's involved probably with all perhaps all sex workers under our current rubric. Do you distinguish between particular, you know, obviously by virtue of being a prostitute, you're engaged in prostitution, you're not human, it's not all human trafficking, is it? Or is it? Is that a definition that you would assign to it? Well, we think a large majority of prostitution can be categorized as human trafficking. Really, for sure, anywhere where there is somebody who has exercised some form of coercion or control or abuse of a position of power or abuse of the vulnerability of their victim in order to get them to put themselves on the street in order to have them sell sex. So we do see a a large amount of prostitution as being part of 
what sex trafficking is. We also look at a lot of people in prostitution as people who are in need of services. So we don't try to exclude people out of providing them with services that they may need. Uh, Many studies have shown that the vast majority of people in prostitution would like to get out of prostitution if there were other options for them. Rather than it being a career choice, it really is more of a lack of options. And so really what we aim to do is to try to offer them other options and opportunities and services that they need, whether it's counseling, legal services, job training, or immigration assistance, in order to help them to have options to do something else with their lives. And again, mm-hmm. there's a large economic piece to that, right? In Absolutely. Terms of opportunity and other options. So, poverty this- is a big push factor, and then of course, demand and the fact that there are people out there who are looking to pay for sex with these individuals uh, is another contributing factor to the escalation of human trafficking. And in the the uh, sort of the gender issue with respect to this, we come back to, again, those who wish to purchase sexual activity are rarely punished in the same way that the women who are caught up in that are. Is that still fair to say, that the Johns are not, are not prosecuted the same way that prostitutes are? I do think that that's still true. And we did in New York State in recognition of the fact that demand is something that should be addressed in order to combat human trafficking, elevate the level of patronizing a person in prostitution up to an A misdemeanor. That being said, it doesn't necessarily... Up to an A misdemeanor? Up to an A misdemeanor. Well, it is now an A misdemeanor as of 2007. Um, But we uh, aren't seeing necessarily the same number of arrests for people patronizing. as for the people in prostitution who are much more frequently arrested. Right. But just like with that, if we just, you know, looking at um, uh, immigration or illegal immigration issues where it affects employers, if we arrested employers who hire people without papers as opposed to those who are working without papers, that would be the end of the problem. It's just that we don't do that. We tend to just go after the lower rung, you know, in the, uh, in the offense issue. Okay, but let me just try to set this up for discussion uh, with the listeners about economic abuse. So domestic violence, and I think this should be a definition you may agree with, is a pattern of gender-based intimate partner dating or family violence with a central dynamic of power and control. It is intended to harm the physical and or mental well-being of the victim and can be psychological, physical, economic, or sexual in nature. In the U.S., an estimated one out of every four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. 1.3 million women, 1.3 million women are victims of physical assaults by an intimate partner each year. These are big numbers. Big, yes. Now... Add human trafficking, also characterized by power and control dynamics. The internationally accepted definition of human trafficking contained in the so-called Palermo Protocol, which I believe supplemented the the U.N. Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime, defines trafficking in persons as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons by means of the threat or use of force or other forms of coercion, of abduction, of fraud, of deception, of the abuse of power or of a position of vulnerability, or of the giving or receiving of payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person. For the purpose of exploitation, exploitation shall include at a minimum the exploitation of the prostitution of others or other forms of sexual exploitation, forced labor or services, slavery or practices similar to slavery, servitude or the removal of organs. 
the consent of a victim trafficking to the intended exploitation is irrelevant where any of these means have been used. So I guess if someone said, you know, but I, I choose to be a prostitute here, doesn't matter if other factors that comprise this definition are in play, which is probably how it, how it should be. Certainly that's what I would uh, agree Well, to. that's really to make it so the victim isn't the one on trial. We see this a lot, for example, it's similar to rape cases, where you are focused too much on the consent of the victim, then you right. tend to forget the... <laughs> right violence, the coercion, the, the behaviors of the perpetrator. So right. really what we're trying to do is uh, remove that and, and not really be focusing on did this victim consent as much as what did this perpetrator do. Right. Good. Okay. So the tactics then, Amanda, of power and control that are employed by perpetrators of both domestic violence and human trafficking um, these are the dynamics that are mostly played. It's not about sex. It's not about it's about control and power, right? So when you come down to the question that experts in this area, I believe you included certainly always here with respect to both of these groups is why don't they just leave? Why don't they leave if the guy is punching them in the head? Why don't they leave if they're being so abused? Can you answer that? Well, we hear the question, why don't they leave, quite a bit. And I think one of the, the problems with asking why don't they leave is that you have to understand that when another person holds power over them through fear, isolation, and intimidation, and when the reality is that the most dangerous time for a victim is upon separation from their abuser, leaving isn't really easy and it's not really safe. Right. You have to have a huge support network. You need access to money to buy food and clothing and shelter for yourself. And if you have children, for your children, they don't ask where would they go or what would they do when they ask, why don't they just leave? And I think that's the problem. It's really a matter of providing those options and opportunities so that people have the means to be able to leave if they wish to, rather than, again, focusing on the victim and what is why is the victim staying there. So in your work at Sanctuary for Families, do you do find then that breaking the cycle of violence of your clients is contingent upon sort of very directly addressing economic circumstances, no? That's absolutely true. If our clients have access to adequate and affordable housing, if they have the ability to sustain employment and pay for food for themselves and their children, then it gives them a lot more options in order to be able to break free from their abusers, who have often controlled those portions of their lives. Okay, but breaking out of that is easier said than done. It is, and we do know that upon separation, that is one of the most dangerous times for a victim where they may be in need of a lot of safety measures. And so they really should be speaking with domestic violence advocates, counselors, and attorneys who have expertise in this area about how to protect themselves. And every case is individual. So there may be different safety planning for each victim based upon them and their abusers uh, and what the circumstances of that relationship have been and what the resources that each of them have are. So mm. in the wake of, you know, the whole NFL Ray Rice, you know, DV, which at least it raised the consciousness, right, it was probably really good for the conversation. And then I understand, you know, you have trending sort of, you know, hashtag why I stayed and people aren't they talking about um, most of many times economic issues. Can you speak to what, you know, perhaps just a 
even a shortened list of what would constitute economic abuse. What do people find themselves in? It's not just, sorry, you can't have your allowance now. How are the many ways that typically women are controlled by virtue of the abuse? Because isn't an economic abuse is a form of domestic abuse, right? That is a that's, form of it. That's correct. It is one of the forms, and it is a very prevalent form that we see in most of our cases where abusers are preventing their victims from working or from keeping or controlling their own earnings. Um, they are often preventing victims from obtaining immigration status or, or stalling on doing their immigration paperwork where there is a remedy for them to be able to sponsor them for immigration purposes, holding that over them in order to keep control of their victim. So without work authorization, it's very hard for them um, to be able to break free and to be able to get a job. Impeding their education or their training, often mm-hmm. um, making mm-hmm. it difficult you know, starting an argument every time the victim is trying to study for a college class, for example. And there is a significant amount of dating violence that happens in colleges as well as in high schools. Another part of economic abuse can be interfering with the victim's employment by stalking them at their work site, causing them to miss work because of incidents of violence, and then the person trying to perhaps hide the injuries and calling in sick to work. There are massive amounts of work days that are missed as a result of victims of domestic violence calling in sick to work as a result of the abuse. There are a wide variety of tactics that abusers use. They'll withhold information about the household finances so that they don't allow their victims to participate in the family's financial decision-making. So if you think about being someone who is suddenly out on your own in the world and has never paid bills or balanced a checkbook because you didn't have access, somebody else was always doing that, it can be a very daunting thing. A lot of abusers place all the assets in their own names or the names of some of their family members or friends while amassing debts under the victim's name. So the victim is left with very few resources and poor credit. So it's very hard to then rent an apartment because they don't have cash reserves to be able to pay in advance and they have poor credit. So it's very hard to get a landlord to rent to them. So there are a lot of ways in which this abuse can put a victim in a position where they don't have somewhere to go and they don't have the resources to be able to get away. Mm. So you can be stuck from choosing, <clears throat> having to choose between like a living a life of subsistence or perhaps being out on the street, something that's a daunting, frightening thing to many of us, thinking about I'll be homeless, especially in a big city, yes. versus getting abused with your you know, significant other, right? That's, that is a, um, a real Hobson's choice, right? I mean, that would be, and a lot of women are faced with that. Isn't that, I mean, that's a big, pro- if everyone had, in the, were independent, had independent resources, it would be easier to say, leave the ass, you know, leave the schmobo, right? You'd be able to say that. But it's the, the dynamics of the interpersonal issues, right, are way more complex than that, right? I mean, it's, it's a... That's true. Um, so in New York City, one, the, one, well, the one law that we're familiar with, I'm sure you are as well, but that's all we, we know in our practice is the New York, and we're going to we'll just speak here because we're speaking to folks who may be listening outside of New York, yes. but many of the, what we're talking about, a lot of these laws, we're New York based today, right? We're talking yes. about the statutes. So New York City, our so-called human rights law, mm-hmm. has for the last almost, I think, 10 years or more, um, a provision that if yes. a victim of domestic violence is... Um, is injured, she's entitled to, let's say, so she's beaten up and calls in and says, my, my husband battered me, I need a few, I'm in the hospital, I need a few days to recover. 
they are entitled to a so-called reasonable accommodation, the same as anyone else with a disability. So the employer has to work with that person, not simply say, oh, her wacky boyfriend is calling us. We don't need any part of this. Let's fire her before he comes and stalks her. There's substantial economic protection in New York City as a result of that law. Is that you know fair to say that that's sort of powerful statute? Yes, that's that's correct. And we actually have also been able to utilize that statute to protect our clients' safety. For example, I've had clients whose abusers were stalking them at their workplace. If they work for a large employer that has multiple locations, for example, we could move them, transfer them to a different office, give them different work hours because the abuser then won't know the victim's schedule to be able to be waiting when the victim's supposed to be arriving at work or leaving work. So there are actually very significant things that employers can do to protect the safety of their employees that don't cause really an undue hardship on the employer. Right. Right. So, Which they um, have to do unless it important. causes an undue hardship, right? That's, That's the law. exactly right. But, but prior to that or until they're told, I'm afraid you need to do this unless it's an undue hardship, they probably would be less inclined, most companies, to put themselves out into that, you know, to help this person who seems to be either living what seems to them of like a marginal existence or calling in ill or beaten up a lot. Are there any other laws that you're aware of, any other similar statutes in the country that are like that in terms of protecting work in the workplace? Well, in addition to the city law, which I think is the broadest, there's also state law and federal law that protects victims. But um, I, I think that it's also important to know that if victims are going to court in order to help protect their safety, they're allowed to go to those court dates without losing their job as okay. well. That's really a part of this. And Often I have found that employers are fairly receptive to this once they have that information. As an advocate on behalf of my clients, I have written a letter to an employer explaining to them their obligations under the law and asking for those specific accommodations for a client, and it has often been successful in helping our clients to retain their jobs. But apart from regular good human decency, part of that reason is because they would face potentially punitive damages and attorney's fees if they violate it. So I'm just wondering, and I don't know of any other, I know that there's no, the state law that you're referring to is what in terms of protection, just a court date? I just was wondering how the New York State or any other state. Right. Well, this, the, the state recognizes that discrimination based on their status as a victim of domestic violence is uh, impermissible. It doesn't go as far as our city law to afford those reasonable accommodations. Our city law, I think, is probably the most progressive right. in terms of protecting victims' rights. Right. So, but what is this? Where, where is the state law embodied? And what does that provide for? Do you know? You know, I... I okay, don't have that okay. information. I, I don't either. We, I should have known too, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, so let me. And is there is, a, but there is a federal. What is you were mentioning? There's some federal protection to somewhere. In, in? Well, um, part of the Equal Employment Opportunity um, Commission's work is to look at things like oh. this, and that has warned that adverse employment actions against victims may violate the okay. Americans with Disabilities see, Act or it. Title Seven Civil yeah, Rights yeah. Act. Right. So um, there are definitely. Laws Laws in place that protect right. victims. Right. But just to point out, I'm sorry, I lost my the so shortcomings. We also have um, EEOC guidelines with respect to pregnancy issues, pregnant accommodations, reasonable accommodations, except it's not yet federal law. So while it goes some, you know, it's on the way to sort of persuading perhaps courts, it's really not yet 
statutory and doesn't have the power mandatory uh, power. That's so, correct. you know, again, we, there's there's a lot of work that we we all can do, and someone like you is doing it to push this envelope forward to help those who are that disempowered, you know, victims of domestic violence who, you know, especially when their economic independence is being threatened by an intimate partner, right? So, but let's talk about laws you do know a lot about. Sure. In, tw- in 2014, so remedies to address domestic violence, Amanda, and trafficking, and the work that the very important work that you do. In 2014, New York State launched, or is this New York City, the Human Trafficking Intervention Courts? So that's our New York State unified court system. Okay. So just please tell us, what, what, is, what does that do? How did it come about? How is it helping? Well, the Human Trafficking Intervention Courts are part of our criminal justice system. They're part of the criminal court, and they're a specific part that handles prostitution cases for people who are arrested for loitering for prostitution and for prostitution. And essentially, they look at the people in prostitution not just as run-of-the-mill criminals to be cycled through the system, given a guilty plea, and moved out onto the street. We were seeing a lot of this happening, particularly when they were pimp-controlled or trafficker-controlled, because the traffickers would supply their defense attorneys who would tell them to plead guilty, and that would get them out on the street faster. This really looks at alternatives to incarceration, counseling, and social services programs that can help them to understand what their options are. And we also have a pilot program with pro bono attorneys that Sanctuary for Families is running, where the pro bono attorneys will then meet with the criminal defendants coming through that part and screen them for other legal and clinical social work needs that they may have that related to human trafficking. And they have actually identified dozens of victims of trafficking through that pilot program so far, and it's only been in place for a couple of months. Oh, outstanding. Where is that, where is that court? Where, do the, where are these cases heard? Actually, physically, where? So there are particular parts within the state criminal courts that are designated as the human trafficking intervention court parts. And our pilot program with pro bono attorneys is in Queens County. Okay. So the wonderful part about that, you know, as a former public defender back in the 80s, my recollection of all of this was, um, is that... Anytime someone accused of prostitution came through the, the system, they could have 300 prior arrests. The result was the same. The DA said, we're offering the same time served for the same B misdemeanor they all pled to 350 times previously. So it's really, you know, travesty. It was just part of feeding, like they, they're sent into the maw of the system and they come out the same. Here, though, we're stopping to identify. They're not just numbers and figures because, you know, rarely, to pro- rarely does anyone in that situation do any hard time. But the point is, there is um, some remedial, someone may help these women and also uncover additional abuses such as who may be trafficking these women. I mean, have any other arrests been made because of that? Do you know? I don't know specifically, and I can't really talk about a lot of pending cases. But what I can say is that we have a law in New York State by which those people who have numerous prostitution offenses who were victims of human trafficking are able to get those convictions vacated, which helps enormously Enormously. because, once again, having a criminal record can 
very much prevent them from being able to break free from the world of prostitution because how do you get a job outside of prostitution with all these exactly. convictions mm-hmm. on Absolutely. your record? So being able to vacate those convictions as a result of being able to show that you were a victim of human trafficking during the time that all those convictions took place is a really, really helpful tool. And we are actually working on getting an affirmative defense put into the law so that they don't have to first get a conviction and get okay. it vacated really on the other end. And it's part of the Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act, which we've been trying to get passed in the state legislature for the past couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about that? I didn't, you know, what, what that embodies and is there any chance, you know, what is the status of it right now? Sure. I think there's a lot of support statewide for the Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act. And we've done a lot of advocacy about it for the past couple of years. It was made one of the planks of the Women's Equality Act right. and uh, has also been a standalone bill. Right. We are hoping that in the next legislative session we will be able to see it passed. What was the support or lack of support in the last session? I think some of it had to do with it it being a part of the Women's Equality Act and the debates around reproductive rights that occurred between the Assembly and the Senate um, about a different plank of that bill. Um, So it was sort of caught up in the political process, but we're really hoping that we'll be able to get it passed. I think there was strong support for it in both houses of our legislature as well as among advocates statewide. That has the support of our governor? And it has the support of the governor, for sure. And a lot of survivors have been going up to Albany and speaking about their experiences and about the importance of having this new law. So there's momentum on this. We're getting some momentum towards uh, progress. We believe so. And so before we were uh, on the air, we were talking about uh, another legislation in New York State passed to add to forms of economic abuse to civil, from the penal law, but in order to empower women who are seeking civil remedies in family court or in in, uh, civil court? Yes. So in New York State, someone who is a victim of domestic violence can have an order of protection, an order of protection from either criminal court or from uh, family or Supreme Court, so a civil as well as a criminal order. And, of course, in criminal court, we have the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. It can be more challenging Mm -hmm. to get convictions there. On the civil side, with uh, a lower standard of proof with a preponderance of the evidence, they can obtain a civil order of protection, which can have a number of different provisions, most commonly that their abuser has to stay away from them, stay away from their home, stay away from their place of employment, stay away from their school or their business, and refrain from from harassing or menacing or stalking them. And that's a really important protection Mm -hmm. because a violation of it triggers mandatory arrest. So that is... Yes, any violation of that order triggers mandatory arrest. So having uh, offenses that were included in the in the Family Court Act that would trigger someone to be able to obtain a civil order protection was basically how New York State put its statute together. So somebody is already violating the law. They're, they are breaking a provision of the penal code. 
but a victim, him or herself, can go and petition in the family court to seek a civil remedy for that, a civil, a civil order protection. It started um, okay. out really being uh, for various forms of physical violence and stalking and threats, and it expanded to include some sexual offenses a few years ago. And then most recently, in December 2013, in recognition of how widespread economic abuse was among victims and what a big problem it was for victims trying to break free, um, the state legislature added to the enumerated family offenses identity theft in the first, second, or third degree, grand larceny in the third or fourth degree, or coercion in the second degree. And these are different crimes that if the petitioner the victim, him or herself, going into court can uh, make out by a preponderance of the evidence that their abuser committed, they can obtain that civil order protection. So this is just about the order of protection that we're talking about and just a, a lower That's standard. That's correct. So if someone, and just if we have listeners in New York that are experiencing domestic violence, have no idea what to do, as we said, the resources sometimes it's hard to find. I'm glad we're, they'll be able to by the end of the show, we'll give all of your contact information, call you wherever you send them to call. But if um, someone is experiencing identity theft or grand larceny, and they are crimes, why would they go, other than that burden of proof, why wouldn't they run to the district attorney or to criminal court or to the police? Well, we've had a lot of challenges getting law enforcement to arrest and to recognize those kinds of crimes when they happen between spouses. Particularly, okay. so you mean, um, like it's a family affair. Yes, if if a client goes in and and says, uh, I believe that my husband has been taking out credit cards in my name and charging up uh, these huge debts that I can't pay that I didn't consent to, they'll often say, "Go take care of that in a divorce." They don't see that as okay. a, a criminal issue. So I think it, okay. it has been That's very very hard. Yeah. Yes. So then what does that person do when when she's shown the door by the assistant district attorney who says, you know, go get a divorce or speak to a matrimonial lawyer? We, we deal with real crime around we here. We do have some assistant district attorneys who take these issues very seriously and have um, recognized it within domestic violence. I think getting to the district attorney's office if they're just trying to report, for example, to a police officer at a precinct has okay. been part of the issue. Um, but if they do have a hard time, for example making that burden of proof, and it, it really isn't something where they're going to get a criminal conviction. We try to address it in part. They could address it through the civil order of protection. There are things that people can do to freeze their credit um, to try to dispute those charges. And then we also deal with them in divorce cases, and that's what I specialize in doing on behalf of domestic violence survivors. So if someone calls you up and says, this is what's going on. My husband, my partner has been, I'm, you know, is just generally abusive. He's emotionally abusive. And lately I see he's been stealing from me. I don't even know how to prove it, but I'm telling you, I've got a credit card statement. I don't know who did this. It's him. What have you. Everything you've been talking about. What's the first thing that you would tell her to do besides come in and meet with you? But assuming that, you know, this all seems to shake out to, yeah, this is another model case of what we're talking about here. And it might not rise to the level of, oh, great, the DA is going to be so thrilled to bring this. There's no indictment. There's no felony level anything. It's a little murky. But you know this is yet another woman who's suffering these indignities, these, um, you know, these, these crimes, being victimized. What can she do? What will you do on her behalf? Well, 
I tell anyone who is being subjected to domestic violence who has any suspicion that their abuser may be doing anything to harm their credit, to check their credit report and ask them to look and see if there's anything on their credit report that they weren't aware of. And we will definitely discuss that and whether they have remedies, for example, within a divorce action, and it may be initiating a divorce action and working on those issues in the divorce. We may also talk about trying to make a criminal complaint. It doesn't always work, but we may talk about trying to make a criminal complaint because one of the ways, for example, to be able to dispute charges is uh, they often want to see that um, some sort of fraud has been reported to law enforcement. Um, and then we may need to do some advocacy to try to get law enforcement to allow them to make a report. Now, so if a client says to you, and I remember this from my day too, well, I, I want this fixed and I can't stand the emotional abuse and now the loss of, of, of actual U.S. currency, but I don't want him arrested. You know, I don't, because if he's arrested, then he won't be able to take care of my kid or whatever. Or I just don't want him arrested. Mm-hmm. Or, and that doesn't that come from sometimes the tumultuous not linear or black and white nature of relationships that can be sometimes described in court by defense lawyers as stormy, but there's a lot of abuse, but there is some codependency issues, right? And there are people who will say, I need help, and you say as an officer of the court, I want you to get out of harm's way. This is the last time he's going to get to do X, Y, and Z. But she's saying, okay, I want to avoid the criminal justice system. Now, do you, do you need to, to, to start a divorce action to get her some redress? Not necessarily. Often a first step can be looking at whether the person can pull together the resources to go to a safe place, whether that person might need to go into domestic violence shelter. Running to court or running to the criminal justice system isn't always the best step one or necessarily the remedy that every victim is going to want. And I don't think it's a one size fits all system. So we would really look at the person's individual circumstances and what makes the most sense for him or her. And we have people in um, each of the boroughs to address these issues. I would recommend that in um, Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx or Queens, um, we don't have yet one in Staten Island, but we have family justice centers that are put together, the New York City family justice centers that are run um, by both the Mayor's Office to Combat Domestic Violence and uh, are made up of representatives from most of the major leading domestic violence advocacy organizations and service provider organizations across the city. They can go there as a walk-in between 9 and 5 on Monday through Friday in any of those boroughs and have a screening for an advocate to meet with them and determine what services they need and then refer them to to the appropriate experts to give them consultations and possibly take legal action on their behalf. Also connecting them with economic empowerment services, counseling services, services for their children if they have children. So I think that those are a great resource great for them resource. to take mm. advantage of. The New York say, say it again. New York City Family Justice Centers. Do you know the URL or they'll just Google that, they'll find it, right? Yes. Okay. New York City Family Justice Centers in all in four boroughs. Yes, so, and they're okay. going to be opening one in Staten okay, Island. That's terrific. Monday as to well. Friday, walk in. It's walk in Monday okay, through Friday. So that's an outstanding start resource if you're at your wits' end and need. Because looking in the yellow pages, if you will, that don't exist anymore, but looking for an attorney 
and I think we, you know, you discuss some of this. Maybe we'll talk about the, the challenges in finding counsel, in finding affordable housing, in finding what you need when you're in that more or less precarious state. It's not, you know, it's no small task, right? So they're not, there aren't too many attorneys, right, in this city, when we're talking about New York, that are going to say, sure, come on in, unless it is a pro bono case, we're working with you on this. So where... Are they sending these? Are these courts sending all of these folks to you? Are there there are plenty of organizations that have attorneys such as you that actually because you have a caseload, right? You have. I do. Okay, so how many? But it is not not too many. You, you know, probably not too many colleagues just like you doing what you do in this city, no? Well, within my organization, I have a number of colleagues across all the boroughs. Uh, some of us focusing on family law, others on immigration law. I also yeah. have housing law attorney and public benefits advocate. So we do provide a variety of services in-house. There are a number of other organizations who we collaborate with through the family justice centers in order to provide these services. But it's also important to note that people at all different economic levels can suffer from domestic violence. Right. And so we do right. hear from people who are domestic violence victim who may have resources to be able to hire private counsel. And there are a lot of great private attorneys out there citywide, uh, many of whom used to work with us at Sanctuary for Families or are part of our legal advisory council or part of our network to whom we can refer people who have a little bit higher means so that they may not qualify for free services, but are looking for somebody who's going to understand the dynamics of domestic violence in order to provide them with those domestic violence sensitive services and to be able to understand how best to advise them. So we definitely have resources to which we can send people. There aren't enough resources, of course, to go around, and we'd love to see more resources in this area. Um, but we can try to connect people up with uh, an appropriate attorney to assist them. So, again, great strides have been made. In your, yes. in your lifetime as an attorney in the last dozen years, it has changed fairly markedly because they're right. There was a time. When, when did these justice courts open? So the first Family Justice Center, I believe, was the one in Brooklyn that opened in 2005, and then they've each rolled out. Since then, the most recent to open being the one in Manhattan, which is fairly new. So yes, these things have, have really developed and come about, and this model has grown of really providing a one-stop shop for domestic violence victims to go in in a walk-in center. Um, It's a great, great uh, opportunity for victims to be able to get the wide range of their services met in one location. Right. Right. Well, it's a huge... I mean, back in my day, I remember when it used to be, there was a case you may have even heard of, but in the 80s, where a former judge was removed from the bench because of this by a man named named Lauren Duckman, had a, allowed a, a three-time domestic, uh, you know, violent abuser, released him, lowered his bail, and released him from jail because he had, had said that his dog needed some feeding or something, and he got out and he murdered his, uh, you know, his 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 partner. Um, there was absolutely no rhyme or reason other than a judge's whim. Or whether what the bail should be, or whether these ser- what, what other services might be necessary, as sort of an integrative, really a holistic issue. There's a lot, as you mentioned, these courts provide. We're talking about a whole range of services that people that are in that situation may need. Well, right? it's interesting because under New York State's bail 
provisions of the law, we still actually don't take into account the person's dangerousness when looking at bail. We don't necessarily take into account, for example, for domestic violence, alleged domestic violence perpetrators, that letting them out on bail, and most of them are booked and released the next day, that um, that one of the things you should take into account is their dangerousness to the victim. Really, what we're taking into account is, are they likely to return to court? That's really what the right. bail is for. Are they right. likely to return right. to court to be able right. to stand trial for what they're accused of? So there are some um, attempts through the legislature to pass legislation that would add some element of looking at dangerousness and known lethality factors for domestic violence victims um, and whether the person has violated orders of protection in the past because what the victim would then have in place to protect him or herself is an order of protection. So really looking at has this person had a history of violating orders of protection. These are things we would like to see courts be allowed, judges be allowed to take into account when setting bail, um, but that hasn't happened yet. But must come into play, the lethality issues, and somehow subjective humans making the analysis at the, on the bench, because even right with, a, with levels of crimes that don't have anything to do with your your um, the your, the what was the term you looked about your um, the chances that you'll return to court mm-hmm. if you're charged with a homicide versus charged with a violation of the law the bail will be higher right I mean it does based on the severity yes. and there are certain other factors so you know one would hope that our judges would still listen to the fact that he's made threats on her life. But you're saying that that's really not... Well, most crimes of domestic violence are charged as misdemeanors. So they're not really being right. well, you know, held to that higher level. And it doesn't necessarily um, uh, account to just people of lesser means. I, I mean, I recall, and this is a number of years ago, the awareness level. He had the money. He was controlling everything. He got her check, so she wasn't really able to leave, even though she was earning a substantial amount of money on her own. He had the he had it all. Mm-hmm. She couldn't just pick up her son and leave. He chased her down. He knew she went to her mother's. She tried to explain this to the court. They were not necessarily sympathetic because he had... He was a man of means. So it's good to see that there has been some change, even just to be able to look at these things. So in my friend's case, fortunately, she had friends she could borrow money from. Right. Because in order to keep custody of her son, even, she had to prove that she could afford a two-bedroom apartment that he wasn't sleeping in a bed or in a room with her, you know, and she had no money. She had to borrow, you know, it was awful. It was really, really awful. Well, speaking of the, you know, you used the pronoun neutral or you said he, she before people call you. What are are the percentage of uh, men who would call you and consult and you would say it doesn't have to be uh, you know, an empirical number. Are men still coming through? Do you accept cases from men who say this is clearly a domestic violence situation? We do have male 
victims who call us and who become our clients, many of them are through our LGBTQ initiative, which is um, something that we have really been building over the years and really recognizing that domestic violence does take place in same-sex relationships. In everybody's home, in all homes. Yes, and so we definitely have some clients who are male victims. But in male-on-male and the same-sex categories you're talking about now, the perpetrators are also male, right? Yes, uh, in the same-sex cases, yeah. So I'm saying, but because one hears this all the time and from the sort of the men's rights contingent that there, you you can see the photos on on the Internet, you know, plenty of men, they may not come forward for different reasons, but, you know, men are victims of domestic violence, and I I certainly believe that, but I would think it's a relatively, I mean, do you see this as a negligible number, female-on-male issues of domestic violence? Are they so negligible as to really not, you know, make it into the charts, or is there a substantial sub- category, you say, I represent a couple of men who have been actually victimized in the way women have been, notwithstanding you know, issues of physical power. Are there other issues that still can make in a relationship, and you've seen it, and there are some righteous, act- actionable cases of men as victims? With there women certainly can be. I haven't seen as <laughs> many of them, but I think it's important when we analyze what has been happening in the dynamics of a relationship to try to determine who is the one exercising power and control over the other, who is the primary aggressor in the case is the way police are trained to think of it when they're looking at who to arrest. Right. Um, that analysis isn't always done perfectly, of course, in right, the field, right. um, but trying to see who is the one that is exercising power and control versus somebody who may be attempting to fight back or defend themselves and you know may not be utilizing the best tools, but using the tools that are at their disposal. And so, you know, there certainly can be cases um, where there may be, you know, mutual abuse, but we we tend to be able to, by interviewing the person who's seeking the services and hearing more about the dynamics, we can usually determine to a reasonable certainty whether we think that this is a case of domestic violence that uh, we should prioritize. Mm -hmm. So in your writing, Amanda, you've indicated that in order to adequately address the impact, the profound impact of economic abuse on domestic violence victims, a number of mechanisms and forms of assistance are required. First, you indicate New York State laws governing spousal and child support maintenance during and after divorces and equitable division of assets must reflect an understanding of economic abuse and based on principles of fairness, consistency, and predictability. So, (coughs) excuse me. What steps is this something that can be that family courts are actually now focusing on? Has there been movement? You know, what what is it? If it's obtaining a divorce is an important step for some survivors to empower themselves, and these are, this is your particular area, right, of expertise. Yes. So, again, um, are you know legislators have re- have they recognized an urgent need? You know, these days more for reform, and has there been any reform at least back? You know, from what it was like 10 years ago in terms of the domestic relations law? Yes. Well, our domestic relations law has changed quite a bit in the time that I've been practicing. One thing that has been added is no-fault divorce. We now have divorce based on the irretrievable breakdown of the relationship uh, rather than having to prove fault. Uh, So that has been a big change in our domestic relations law. Of course, some domestic violence uh, survivors have 
benefited from that because they don't have to prove the abuse in order to get their divorce. Uh, others would say that, you know, their abuser being allowed to just divorce them is a problem. So one of the things that was right. incorporated into that law is that other issues, such as economic issues, have to be resolved mm-hmm. either by an agreement of the parties or by a decision of the court in order for the divorce to go forward on that no-fault grounds. That's to protect the financial interest, you're saying? That's correct. Because upon divorce, there are a lot of rights that uh, people lose out on. For example, health insurance. You don't have health insurance coverage under your spouse after the divorce is done. And a lot of people were losing their health insurance coverage without necessarily knowing that that was going to result from the finalization of their divorce. We now have laws in place where there are numerous protections and numerous uh, notices that people who are undergoing a divorce receive that tells them that they're going to uh, not be eligible for coverage under their spouse um, for health insurance purposes after the divorce is completed, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another provision of the law that was added that requires that the court uh, look at disparity in incomes and if one spouse is able to afford an attorney and the other isn't, that attorney's fees can be awarded to the non-moneyed spouse for purposes of evening the playing field so that both parties will have counsel to litigate the case. Uh, If there isn't a lot of money to go around on either side, that becomes significantly more challenging. And that's where we hope that our free legal services will be able to come in and and, um, provide those kinds of services. But again, we can't take every case that comes to us. So what has changed on, you know, the moneyed spouse, again, typically, typically is the male, right? I mean, typically, that's what you Not in every case. Well, if it is in the case where the moneyed spouse is the abusive spouse, let's say, forget about gender now. Yes. The moneyed spouse is the abusive spouse. And so he or she can afford whatever counsel he or she wants. Now, the non-moneyed spouse is virtually indigent. It's going to be difficult to get an attorney unless it's you. But, you know, again, you can, you can only be stretched so thin. And we have a very big city. Yes. To get a lawyer to represent, it's almost like a fee-shifting thing where the lawyer could say, I'll get paid at least by the moneyed spouse. Is that a new, I, I, I thought that was always potentially part of the DRL. Yes, it it was codified in the DRL. It had been done through case law in the past, but we've tried to make it more explicit in the domestic relations law um, as a part of the divorce reform package that went into place when no fault was passed in 2010. October 2010 is when it came into force. Hasn't been around in New York State for that long. So that has been a change. And there is... um, Movement afoot, and there have been um, bills that have been considered by the legislature to put in place a, a formula approach for determining spousal maintenance. At this time, it is a multi-factor test um, that one has to litigate. We are hoping that having uh, a presumptive amount based on uh, a formula calculation of the respective incomes of the parties, as well as the length of the marriage, um, with the opportunity for courts to adjust 
the uh, numbers uh, in in a variety of uh, deviation factors if there is a reason why it would be in the interest of justice to change it, but to have something in place to try to help us to settle cases. So there is definitely movement afoot and also to put in place that kind of a, a formula standard for determining spousal support in family court. So that bill mm-hmm. has not passed, mm-hmm. but it not. is something that most of us um, in the legal services community are very interested in seeing. And uh, many of us who advocate on behalf of domestic violence victims have been in favor of this. So we are hoping that we can balance the the equities between um, those who are um, the the moneyed spouse who may say that they're victims of domestic violence and are concerned about having to pay their spouses with the majority of our clients who are the non-moneyed spouse in the relationship and are seeking support from abusers who are typically going to be very, very reluctant to settle a case with uh, any payments to their victim. And your clients, is there a, is there, are there guidelines, I assume, income guidelines in terms of being able to have you as their attorney or Sanctuary for Families? Well, at Sanctuary for Families, we don't have strict income guidelines. We can go a little bit higher, perhaps, than some of the Legal Services Corporation or legal aid mm-hmm. attorneys can. That being said, we are prioritizing people who cannot otherwise afford counsel. So we're going to be doing some analysis about the resources that the person has in order to be able to determine whether they would be able to afford to pay, you know, based on income, household size, properties, et cetera. But um, we really uh, have a little bit more flexibility on that than others. So we're very fortunate in that way. Got Mm. it. Very nice. So you had indicated the Sanctuary for Families um, was pleased at the addition of a provision that uh, in the DRL Section 236B5A, um, de- deviation <laughs> factors, was that, do you know what I'm referring to? Because I was trying. So that's the temporary maintenance guidelines. That puts in place a formula approach for determining temporary orders of maintenance that are in place during the duration of the divorce action. So this is really the immediate relief. That's important. Relief. That happens right away, though, right? Yeah. Because divorces in New York State can take a very long time. It can be a number of years. And um, for the person who has fewer resources, um, we didn't want the person to to basically be over a barrel and not be able to negotiate fairly for a, a final settlement because they are not able to pay the bills day to day. So we were finding that it was challenging to get orders of temporary maintenance during divorce cases. I think the temporary maintenance statute has helped our clients to get some some better orders in place. I think there are things that can be done to improve it, and there has been um, legislation drafted and introduced that both uh, applies the formula to final orders at the end of the case and tweaks some of the, the things with the temporary maintenance that we think could be improved. But overall, we have seen a lot more orders of temporary maintenance to our clients as a result of this than we saw before it was in place. So someone is listening. Let's just get back to, you know, and it's all part of economic empowerment, but someone who is there's a crisis situation now involving physical abuse, and they call you, and you're talking about now you, they need to get out. Forget now about money. They need to get out. It's, it's, a, it's a physically or a life-threatening situation. 
your organization can assist them to get into a shelter situation? Well, New York has a shelter hotline that they can call to determine availability of crisis shelters, and it's a centralized hotline. Okay. And so they can call that hotline, 1-800-621-HOPE, H-O-P-E, and that's the central hotline that um, they can call to access shelter. But also they can connect with organizations like Sanctuary for Families. We do actually have shelters, crisis shelters, and then a larger transitional shelter and connect up with us for purposes of counseling services, legal services, economic empowerment services as well. And those would be free of charge if they're eligible? Yes, all of our services are free. And isn't there, is there a New York State um, maximum amount of time that a person can be in a shelter? So in crisis shelters, we have uh, a limit of 180 days, and that is based upon our system of uh, reimbursement through the state, um, which actually comes down through federal money, and um, that 180-day extension um, is actually more than they used to get a few years ago. There was an advocacy movement led by Sanctuary for Families and others of our partners to move it to 180 days because the, the previous limits, um, there was a 90 days and then you know an extension for um, up to 135 right. on days wasn't enough. Okay. And so getting it up to 180 days was very, very helpful. The problem is with the lack of permanent affordable housing right. in the city, even that amount of time really isn't enough. There are some placements in what are called tier two transitional shelters where they can stay for a longer period of time, but it can be a big challenge. And we are, we have over the past few years as housing subsidies and affordable housing has dried up in the city, we've seen a lot of victims who are forced to go either back into an abusive situation or into a new abusive situation or into the homeless shelter system, um, which is less protective of their safety than the domestic violence shelters, which are providing services in our confidential locations. So we have seen victims who have been unfortunately forced into unsafe conditions conditions as a result of the lack of housing here in New York City. And that you know, is just it's, shameful. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a euphemism we're sort of treading lightly to call it just lack of affordable housing. I mean, there's no affordable housing. There's $3,000 studio apartments, right? So you're talking about it's all of a piece, right? When we're talking about progressive issues in economic empowerment, that the lack of a living wage, the lack of gender pay you know, equity, the lack of affordable housing, it just it perpetuates the cycle, doesn't it? I mean, the fact is, if we were, if we were investing in our infrastructure, if we had jobs. We have lawyers, as you know, getting out of law school that are probably calling you up to and saying, can I work here for nothing for that? And there's no jobs. So people on, you know, that are, that are, that are most vulnerable, right? I mean, you, you do everything you can and there are some success stories there, but the point is it's where, um, you know, it's, it's a very difficult situation, right? It's very difficult to get someone who's on the balls of their butt, if you will. And especially who is that, um, challenged by emotional and physical victimization and perhaps doesn't have the skills, the education, the resources to go from how do they, and I'm sure you have those great success stories, but to go from that, I'm in a shelter right now and I've been, you know, I have post-traumatic stress syndrome diagnosed. I am just trying to hang on by a thread, me and my kids, to get to the point where they're independent, 
you had that as stories with that you're very proud of you know women who have gotten to that point of now I have a job and thank you for your assistance right because that's got to be the the most rewarding part of your Yes, it's definitely great to see some of our clients going from uh, a crisis situation really at the beginning when we meet with them and a lack of resources to really being an empowered survivor. And we have really wanted to cultivate survivor leadership. So we have a mentors program where some of our survivors who have been out of their abusive relationships. Where can I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Where can our clients, your potential listeners, our listeners find you? Because we're ending the show. Sure. Uh, at Sanctuary for Families, www.sanctuaryforfamilies.org. Okay, and give out a phone number, would you? 212-349-6009 is our main office number. And is there anything you can say just in 30 seconds to those who are listening, your audience, your potential clients, to sort of leave them with one thought? Well, I would like them to know that they are not alone, that this is not something that they are the only ones who are suffering. There are a lot of people out there who are experiencing the same thing, and it's not their fault. There are a lot of services out there that they can access, and we would be happy to try to help them if they want to make a move from victim to survivor. We're very, very happy to help. Outstanding. Thank you very much, Amanda Mareko, attorney at law, for joining us today, providing all this outstanding information to folks. It was a huge service. We really